Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about fertility preservation. And when we talk about fertility preservation, we're really talking about a lot of different things. But what I think of this as is active measures you can take to try to help have a family later. So sometimes this is necessary. Maybe you're undergoing cancer treatment, or you are purposefully waiting to have kids until you're an older age, or maybe this is something you just want to be proactive about because having children is one of your life goals. No matter what, I'm going to go into both lifestyle measures and interventions that we can do that can help you have the best chance of having fertility later when you need or want it. Now, before I dive in, I want to talk about this week's fertility in the news. This week, Jennifer Aniston released Bombshell Revelation that she went through IVF when she and Brad Pitt were married. First of all, no celebrity owes us anything. No celebrity owes us any details about their personal life, about their fertility journey, or what it is. She has been speculated throughout her time in the public eye to be pregnant or not care about kids or childless by choice. And magazines even had rumors that that is the reason why Brad Pitt and her did not work out, that he wanted children and she did not want them. Now she has told Allure magazine that the opposite is actually true, that she went through IVF and was unable to conceive. In one of her quotes, she says, I was going through IVF, drinking Chinese teas, you name it. I was throwing everything at it. I would have given anything if someone had said to me, freeze your eggs and do yourself a favor. The thing that I think is so powerful is that going through infertility or going through IVF feels so isolating. And very often, when we hear celebrity stories, yes, they do a wonderful job at making IVF less stigmatized and a part of the household conversation. But sometimes they shadow it with unrealistic expectations, or they don't share the full truth, or we don't hear the stories of so many people like Jennifer Aniston who didn't have success. And anybody who's been through IVF or anybody who's in the fertility field knows IVF is not a guarantee. It is not 100% successful. It is at best usually 60 to 65% successful with a genetically normal embryo when you do a transfer. Reproduction in humans is not very efficient. So to have somebody come out and share that they tried to get pregnant, 
and they weren't able to. That IVF didn't work for them. And despite all the fame and money and connections and resources somebody like Jennifer Aniston has, she still was not able to get the end result that she wanted. And so, Jen, I'm so sorry that you went through this. I'm so sorry you suffered in silence while the world speculated about your personal life. I'm so thankful for you coming out now and sharing the story because as a fertility doctor, it really normalizes that the process is hard and isolating and it isn't always successful. And the more that we can know that IVF is an opportunity but not a guarantee, and the more we talk about our failures in any aspect of life, the more it is that we really do help each other. So a huge thank you from the bottom of my heart to Jennifer Aniston for coming out and sharing this really vulnerable piece of information. And with that, I want to dive into what it means to talk about fertility preservation. All right, so in general, fertility preservation is saving your fertility for later. I will hear a lot of people say that this is like an insurance policy on your fertility, which is really not my favorite way to describe anything with your fertility. An insurance policy is going to pay off if the bad thing happens, right? You have house insurance, house burns down, you're going to get money. You have car insurance, you get in a car accident, they're going to help you in some way. This is an investment in your future. And just like any investment, you're playing the stock market. You're trying to make a smart investment. Now, fertility preservation originally started only out of medical necessity, specifically for cancer. So when we first started talking about egg or embryo freezing, it was really embryo freezing first because egg freezing was experimental. And we were doing this and freezing them to save for the future only for people who had cancer and needed to do this. This is in the day of fresh embryo transfers and embryo freezing wasn't as successful and egg freezing was still experimental. Let's remember egg freezing was experimental until 2012, which really isn't that long ago. That means that when I was the perfect age to freeze my eggs, it was still experimental. So we've come a really long way and that's fantastic because now we have what some people call social fertility preservation. We talk about fertility preservation due to age, with eggs or embryos, due to medical conditions, things like endometriosis or genetic diseases, and of course, for cancer. And so when we think about fertility preservation, what we're really trying to do is allow ourselves more freedom and flexibility in how and when we have a family. Let's just give a cancer example. You have breast cancer. You're going to undergo chemotherapy. The most common chemotherapy for breast cancer causes 20% of people to be in menopause, ovarian failure when they're done with it. No more periods, no more eggs. Now, the other 80%, most of them have taken a significant hit to their egg count. So now they're going to go into menopause earlier, potentially have less children because some of those eggs were damaged from the chemo. In addition, a cancer like breast cancer, sometimes you are on hormonal management to try to prevent your cancer from coming back. And people will be on tamoxifen or hormone modulators for five years plus. And there is a designated period of time where now you cannot get pregnant. To add insult to injury, when we're talking about cancer specifically, the idea that, well, I'm not going to intervene and try to save my fertility. I'm just going to see what happens afterward. What we have to understand is that if you fall in the category that does go into ovarian failure, 
And you might think, well, I'll, I'll be okay. I could adopt a child. That would be an acceptable way for me to have a family. It's actually very difficult to adopt a child if you have medical issues, including cancer. So if you want to have a child as a part of your life goals, we want to make sure you don't lose that opportunity. And so cancer was really the driving force for fertility preservation. The research that was put in for cancer research for freezing eggs is what has allowed us to make egg freezing so much better. And so now when we talk about fertility preservation, I probably talk to at least one patient a day, and most of it is not about cancer at all. It's really about what all can we do, what can we avoid, and what interventions should we know about to try to help our fertility. I'm going to talk about what egg and embryo freezing are, instances when we use them or things to think about in other disease process. And then we're going to talk about lifestyle interventions. That's the outline for this talk. When we're talking about saving your fertility for later, a lot of times this is for either I have a medical problem and I think or I suspect I'm going to have a hard time getting pregnant later, or more commonly, I am waiting to have kids because I haven't found a partner. I'm chasing this awesome career goal. I'm not sure if I'm ready. My mom went into menopause early. Those are circumstances where suddenly we are looking at this from a, we don't know when we'll be ready, but we think we may potentially want the option. There's another scenario where you might carry a genetic disease and you know IVF is in your future. So maybe this is something where you carry a genetic disease like Huntington's and you know that you have a 50% chance of passing this down and you want to eliminate the burden of this disease from your family and from your children and grandchildren. It is smart to go through the process early, even if you're not physically or emotionally ready to be a parent yet, because freezing your eggs at a younger age or making embryos and testing them at a younger age is going to be a better return on the investment. It's going to yield more usable embryos or eggs. It's going to be easier. More of them are going to be normal. It's going to cost you less money. And probably more importantly, will result in less cycles, which will be both physically and emotionally better for you. If we think back to what we said in the fertility in the news, Jennifer Aniston said she wishes she could tell people to freeze their eggs. Nobody told her that. Of course, as we talked about, because it was experimental, it wasn't an option for her. But now she wishes somebody had given her that option or talked to her about that. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner. 
and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No mind shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. If we're thinking about freezing eggs or embryos, the basic difference, your body makes eggs every month. One egg typically ovulates, the rest of them die. Embryos are fertilized eggs that grow out to a blastocyst stage of an embryo. Pros and cons to both. Eggs have all the potential in the world. They are cheaper. That's an advantage. They are not destined to be with a certain sperm, and that is the biggest advantage. Back when egg freezing was still experimental or really newly an option, fertility doctors would counsel patients, you need to go buy donor sperm and make these into embryos. And I would see 36, 7, 8-year-olds who don't want to have a baby with donor sperm. They wanted to wait. There's nothing wrong with having a baby with donor sperm. But these people were waiting to find a partner. And then they wanted to make that decision of what the other gamete source was going to be. And maybe they were waiting for a future yet unidentified partner. But they were being forced and pressured by fertility doctors because egg freezing was still new. Not every lab had an embryologist who could do it, and we didn't have long-term data on the outcome. Also, embryo freezing is more of a guarantee. I'm not going to lie, and I tell everybody this. If somebody sits there and tells you embryos survive better than eggs, they are not lying to you. That is a scientific fact. But let's think about it. An egg is a single cell. It is filled with fluid, and it's super fragile. It's an egg. An embryo at the blastocyst stage, which is the stage where an embryo implants into the body, 
a day five or six embryo. It has like 300 cells. It's very strong. It has the placenta already separated from the inner cell mass of the baby. You can take cells from it. No big deal. It recovers. That embryo has so much potential. So yes, embryos do survive better than eggs. But now we have totally bridged the gap. So national egg survival rates, when you freeze eggs and you thaw them, it's going to be about 85 to 90%. And embryo survival rates are around 98 to 99%. So when we're talking about maybe a 10% difference here in survival, for the vast majority of people in the vast majority of circumstances, it doesn't make sense to go pair them with donor sperm. Now, there are cases where it does. Somebody knows they want to use donor sperm. Somebody who does not have very many eggs because 10% of 20 is a lot different than 10% of two, right? So this is where informed decision-making and talking through the pros and cons is really important. But for most of my patients, I say egg freezing costs about half as much as making them into embryos. So you could do two cycles versus one. And even though you might lose 10%, you're going to have more eggs and that is going to be better for this investment. So I am very unlikely to recommend somebody make embryos for fertility preservation unless you are in a committed, committed relationship with a partner. You know that's who you want to have babies with or nobody. And the reason why I'm harping on this so much is I have seen too many people over the course of my career who have made embryos who are now unable to use them. One of the most heartbreaking is going to be somebody who is now past the point where she can make any more eggs or embryos. And all of her fertility is wrapped up with this partner who now will not allow her or their agreement states they can't use the eggs. And you have these embryos that are sitting there that now you can no longer use because the DNA of those embryos is half a partner who no longer wants to have a child. And if we allow your fertility to lapse, for the most part, Somebody who has sperm has a much, much, much longer duration of their fertility. So I always say if the best world, even if you're with this fantastic partner, the best scenario would be to freeze some eggs and freeze some embryos because you never know what the future holds and it is going to allow you to have more options. If you are just loosely together, eggs, eggs for sure. Do two rounds of eggs if you're low versus making them into embryos. And if you're married, this is your person, or you guys are very committed and you know this is who you want to have children with, nobody else, and you feel comfortable wrapping it all up in embryos, you do get more data. That is for sure. Embryos are much further down the road. When you do egg or embryo freezing, what you're trying to do is get one month's group of eggs to grow forward. So I like to think about every month you have a group of eggs inside your vault, which is this made-believe idea I came up with inside the ovary. That's where all your eggs are. So when you're born, the vault is full throughout your life. Eggs come out of the vault. When the vault is empty, you're in menopause. Now, every month, a group of eggs comes out of the vault, and the number of eggs that come out of the vault is proportional to how many are inside. When you have more eggs remaining, more come out every month. When you have fewer eggs remaining, fewer come out every month. An average 30-year-old has 20 eggs coming out of the vault. An average 40-year-old has 10. That means if that 30-year-old and that 40-year-old both do IVF, one of them could get 20 eggs, one of them could only get 10 eggs. Vastly different outcomes, okay? Now, the other thing to realize is that the quality of those eggs is also drastically different. 
So as your eggs sit inside your vault, they absorb the wear and tear of your life. All the things we're exposed to, all the stress, all the toxins, and just what happens with time. Our proteins break down in our body over time. Our telomeres determine our chromosomes and how strong they are. And all of this stuff is impacted by age and lifestyle. So lifestyle cannot overcome your age, but it can help. So it's always going to be better to be healthier and give your body and your chromosomes what it needs versus to accelerate things by damaging them. A great example is smoking. We know without a doubt, smoking increases the damage to the chromosomes inside your eggs. You have higher rates of going into menopause earlier. So you have lower ovarian reserve, increased miscarriages and genetic abnormalities, and overall poor egg quality from a toxin, from smoking. So don't let anybody tell you that lifestyle doesn't matter. But even if you are living the cleanest life possible, you're over here on the vegan train with me and you work out and you take your vitamins and you get good sleep and try to live a really low inflammatory lifestyle, your chromosomes are still going to reflect your age. We cannot undo the damage that time does because time does add up. So if I take those two people, the 30-year-old and the 40-year-old, that 30-year-old is going to have about 60% of their eggs genetically normal. And that 40-year-old is going to have about 25% normal. So a huge difference. 30-year-old is going to get more eggs and have more normal. The 40-year-old is going to have fewer eggs and have more abnormal. And so the difference in these outcomes is going to be profound. What we go through, no matter how many eggs or what stage of life we're at, to get them to grow, whether we're doing egg freezing or IVF, is relatively the same. You're going to go through a protocol, which I like to explain as suppressing the body and then stimulating it. This is in order to try to synchronize whatever eggs come out of the vault and then get them to grow. The getting them to grow is called the stimulation. And that's what most of us think about when we think about IVF. This is when we take hormone shots of mostly FSH, follicle stimulating hormone, the natural hormone that the brain releases to try to get a follicle or an egg to grow in a natural month. But now we're just giving it a much higher doses than normal. And you're going to take those FSH shots for about two weeks. And during that time period, you're going to come into your clinic for monitoring. We're going to measure the follicle size. They get bigger as the eggs get more mature. We're going to take your estrogen and we're going to follow things. And then when the eggs get to that mature zone, you're going to undergo a trigger shot, which is allows them to finalize the last stage of meiosis and prepares us to be able to retrieve them on the egg retrieval. We will then undergo the egg retrieval. And at the egg retrieval, you get some IV sedation and we attach a needle to the vaginal ultrasound. And we enter vaginally into the ovaries. And we watch with ultrasound as we puncture each follicle and we drain those follicles and we get test tubes full of your eggs. And then you wake up and it's done. And the rest of the magic happens in the lab. No matter if you're doing eggs or embryos, what you just went through was the same. It's what happens to the eggs afterward that differs. If you're freezing your eggs, the eggs are going to get the outer cells stripped off of them called the cumulus. The eggs will be evaluated to see if they are mature, and then they will be frozen. They'll be flash frozen in something called vitrification. If you are going through IVF, which is in vitro fertilization, in vitro means in glass, and so that refers to the petri dish, like fertilizing them in the lab or in the glass dish. They're going to be fertilized either conventionally or with something called ICSI, where we select a sperm and inject them into the egg, and then they will be grown out to the embryo stage potentially biopsied for genetic testing, and then transferred or frozen. For the context of this, we're talking about fertility preservation, 
So nobody's talking about getting pregnant right now. So we are growing out to the embryo stage, maybe doing genetic testing and freezing them. Importantly, human reproduction is really not very savvy. And there's so much loss. And understanding these numbers are really important. So of the eggs that you retrieve, typically what you're going to see is about 75 to 80% of them fertilize. About half of them make it to the blastocyst stage. And then the percentage that will be genetically normal will be dependent upon your current age. And then each genetically normal embryo, when you go to transfer it later, has about a 60 to 65% chance of turning into a baby. So if I take a 30-year-old who's making embryos and I get 20 eggs, now 16 of them have fertilized, eight of them have grown out to the blastocyst stage, and then if I do genetic testing on them, I would anticipate about 60% normal. Let's call it five for the sake of the discussion. Each of those five embryos then has a 60 to 65% chance of turning into a baby. So when we're doing embryo banking for fertility preservation, I like to have at least two normal embryos for every child that you would like to have. So if you told me you want to have two kids, I now have five embryos. Fantastic. You're going to go live your life and travel the world and chase that amazing job. And we're going to feel really happy that we have our five normal embryos waiting for you for when you want to get pregnant later. If you walk in to make embryos for embryo banking at age 40, I now just got 10 eggs. I'm presuming things are average. Of course, everybody does have a different egg count number. It does overall go down at time for everybody. And everybody has their own rate of percentages of fertilization and blastocyst development and genetics. I'm giving you averages for the sake of discussion. But you now got 10 eggs. Eight of them fertilized. Four of them grew out. 25% normal. You just got one normal embryo with a 60 to 65% chance of turning into a baby. That may not turn into a baby. The 30-year-old now has lots of opportunities to have a child. And that 40-year-old now has one, and it may not result in a child. And so these are not extreme cases. These are the averages for what happens at age 30 and what happens at age 40. The only difference in this scenario is age, time and age, average. This is not somebody who's been exposed to chemo or smokes a lot or exposed to all these crazy things. This is just what happens as we get older. Now, if we're freezing your eggs, the disadvantage is I have 20 eggs in the freezer at age 30. I do not know if we're going to fall average on all of those parameters. I do not know. I am making the assumption that you will fall normal. I know that I'm going to lose 10% on average in the freeze-thaw process. So if I had 20 eggs, I would say 18 of them are now going to survive, 14 of them fertilize, 7 of them grow out, and I probably now have 4 genetically normal. So we probably lost a genetically normal embryo by making them eggs versus making them embryos. But it cost us half as much at the current moment, and we potentially could do another cycle if we wanted to have a large family and feel confident that we have that family in the freezer. If you're just doing fertility preservation at age 30, because you're not ready to be a parent, you're chasing other goals, 20 eggs at this moment may suffice. If you're going to undergo chemotherapy or you have really terrible endometriosis or you are going to receive other medications for medical conditions or you carry the BRCA gene and there's a medical indication for your fertility preservation that makes us want to get our whole family's worth, you probably are going to need a different cycle. The reality is we don't know if you're just doing this for age, if you'll have trouble conceiving. 
Maybe there'll be sperm abnormalities and you'll need IVF anyway. Maybe things will be fine. But we're trying to prepare for different scenarios. If you are waiting, the older you are waiting, the harder it's going to be. And having 10 eggs frozen at age 40 really just doesn't give us much reassurance because you could fall easily off those odds and result in no embryos to transfer. And this is why egg freezing got a bad reputation for a while because when it was first available, a lot of people who flocked to it were a little bit older in their older 30s and 40s. And there were these magazine articles about how I froze my eggs and I got no embryos and I was deceived by the process. And I feel like most of us, I mean, myself included, do a really good job of counseling patients, these numbers and the reality of what it looks like. But I will tell every single person, any eggs I get in the freezer at age 38 are better than no eggs and just waiting. If you're not ready to conceive, getting something in the freezer, even if it's not very many, is giving you an opportunity that you otherwise are allowing to pass you by. And I understand egg or embryo freezing is expensive and insurance does not usually cover it. There's a huge barrier to care here. I'm acknowledging that. But if you are in the opportunity where you could do it and you're choosing not to, then you are making that active decision, which I'm okay with. I want you to make the decision. And what I do not want to hear people say anymore is I did not know, or had I known, I would have done something different. Like Jennifer Aniston. Had somebody told me to freeze my eggs, I would have done it. And maybe my whole life would have been different. I want you to know, get your stats. What's your AMH? How many follicles do you have? How much does it cost? What does this look like? And let you choose if it is worth it to you or not. And to drive this point home, there was recently a study published in this month. So this is November of 2022. Fertility and Sterility, which is the leading journal in the REI world. A SART data cost-effectiveness analysis of planned oocyte cryopreservation versus IVF with PGTA, considering ideal family size. So in this study, they looked at what is more cost-effective to achieve one to two live births, freezing your eggs with delayed childbearing, or trying to get pregnant with IVF and genetic testing at a more later age. This was using SART data, which is a huge database that your fertility physicians input all of our IVF cycles. There are many arguments about SART data. I personally hate it in a lot of ways because it doesn't really reflect modern practices. Like if we are allowing patients who have really low ovarian reserve to go through treatment, we get dinged for it because every cycle doesn't result in a baby. But often practices will do what's best for the patient or anyways, that's what we do. And I hope other places do that. But when you pool data together, you can look at a per transfer basis. So what this was doing was looking at the cost effectiveness to get to one to two live births, looking at what clinics all over the country are putting in. And the take home message was that egg freezing at age 33 decreased the average cost from 62,000 if you wait until your age 43 to 30,000. And it increased the likelihood of live birth from 50% to 73%. So one group was egg freezing at age 33. The other group was IVF with genetic testing three cycles, up to three cycles, depending what it took to get you to a live birth at age 43. So age 43, three cycles plus a transfer would cost you $62,000. One cycle of egg freezing at age 33 then delaying making them into embryos and transferring later cost you 30000 with a 73% chance of a live birth. 
And ectrazine had the highest chance of success in the study when it was done before age 32, which is what we have been counseling patients for years, that the ideal time to freeze your eggs is going to be if you are not ready to get pregnant at age 32 to 33, because you're still going to have a high number of eggs and a high level of quality of good, stable chromosomes and high number of euploid embryos as compared to waiting later. Does that mean we don't encourage people to wait later? No, I mean, freezing your eggs at any time is better than not. But if you're looking at when should I say I'm going to freeze my eggs if I'm not pregnant or if I'm not married or if I'm not ready to have a family, age 32 is the perfect number. Okay, what about lifestyle things? So what if you are not able to freeze your eggs or not ready to, or you say, okay, I'll freeze them at 32, but I'm 25. What, what about preserving my fertility for me? There are a few things I think you should know about. So I already mentioned one, smoking cigarettes. Absolutely, every fertility doctor in the whole country will tell you that's the number one thing to avoid. Number two, probably marijuana as well. We have less data on marijuana, but the data we have shows decreased rate of embryo development and decreased rate of pregnancy when you utilize marijuana, likely due to toxicity on the eggs or the quality of the eggs. So no smoking, no marijuana. Would also strongly advise you to try to avoid getting sexually transmitted infections like chlamydia or gonorrhea. So condoms, if you are sexually active, yes, you can use birth control for whatever you want. And condoms can be an effective method of birth control. But condoms, more importantly, even if you have an IUD or you're taking the pill, condoms prevent you from getting a sexually transmitted infection. And getting an infection like chlamydia has a very high rate of damaging your fallopian tubes, even if it's asymptomatic or you get treated right away. So try to avoid sexually transmitted infections. Don't smoke or use marijuana. You also should pay attention to your cycle. If things are abnormal, you should seek medical care. And if you're not getting the answers you need, you should go see another doctor. I really do believe that more modern physicians, we have a different approach than maybe the older guard did. We really believed in shared decision-making and talking patients through pros and cons and letting you be empowered to make your own choice. I think that's a different wave of medicine than how it used to be. My point is, if you're not getting what you need, the doctor-patient relationship is really personal, so go get a new doctor. But if your periods are painful, if they are preventing you from partaking in the regular activities of daily life, calling in sick to school, canceling work, canceling dinner plans, not exercising. You're so miserable that you're taking pain medications and just laying in bed all the time. That's not normal. If you have a lot of GI changes on your period, if you have a lot of pain with sex, those can be warning signs for endometriosis. And diagnosing that earlier may give you insight that endometriosis of the ovaries called endometriomas is something that does decrease your egg count. It does fall into that category of things that harms your fertility. Endo is also very inflammatory. So knowing you have this, focusing on living an anti-inflammatory life and trying to drop inflammation by getting sleep and avoiding inflammatory foods and decreasing stress and having good exercise. And that's going to be helpful. Considering surgery or hormonal management, some of those things can be helpful. There is data to show that long-term oral contraceptive use can improve fertility. And we think this is because it prevented some patients' endometriosis from getting worse. Endo is a really complex disease, but the short answer is you can't make decisions on data you don't know. 
So if your period is painful, off, get it checked out. Same thing with uterine fibroids. If your periods are so heavy that you're bleeding through your clothes, not normal. PCOS, if your periods are irregular, if they don't come regularly and predictably every month, not normal. And if you have no periods, that's absolutely not normal. And that can be so bad for your health, specifically if it potentially could be hypovolemic amenorrhea. In this disease, your brain is not sending out any hormones to grow an egg and you're in a very low estrogen state. And that can be really bad for your body in a lot of different ways. The body really loves to have estrogen. So if your period is off, your period is a vital sign. Please do not ignore it. And then understand that the things that we do to our body, we know what's good and we know what's bad. Our eggs are listening. We have one body. If you know me and you know my story, I had a lot of pregnancy losses and nobody ever knew why. Everything was always unexplained. But truly, I feel like this was, you know, inflammation and autoimmunity that really wasn't diagnosed yet. And so I feel like this is the case in a lot of people who have fertility issues because of the age that we are is a little bit different from the age where some diseases may be diagnosed later. But if I could go back to my younger self, I would say, take care of your body, get good sleep. It's important. Pay attention to what you eat. Putting processed foods and sugar into your body is not good and not healthy. Eat more vegetables, eat fruits, eat whole grains. Be aware if you're sensitive to dairy or to gluten. Look at your meat intake. Cut out processed meats. Limit red meats. Be aware of what you're fueling your body with. That is the nourishment for your cells. Take vitamins. Work out. Don't starve yourself. Nourish your body. So there's so much that we can do when it comes to sleep and exercise and stress and food and supplements that I feel like so often we are ignoring. So really think about what you can do from that end of things. The last thing I'll say on this before I answer a few of your questions is that you can always get an evaluation of your fertility. Every week I see a patient who has low ovarian reserve and had absolutely no risk factors. And we find out that that person may have a harder time having the family size that they want and they get the opportunity to make interventions that potentially will be life-changing. And sometimes that is trying to get pregnant earlier. Sometimes it's freezing eggs and sometimes it's doing something else. But it's about giving you the data so that you can make the choices that are right for you instead of just being unaware. Specifically, if something is an important life goal for you, you deserve to make sure everything is checking out. So you can always call a fertility clinic and get a fertility evaluation. You do not have to be infertile or have infertility to get an evaluation of your fertility. That is your right. Just sometimes you have to ask for it. I am now going to answer a few of your questions for fertility's sake, FFS, our weekly Q&A section. You can ask your questions on my podcast on Mondays at Natalie Crawford, MD. I will answer some of your questions there and some of them here, or you can call and leave a voicemail. The voicemail number is 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. And I love our Q&A episodes. I have another one coming up. So that is a fantastic way to make sure your question is answered. All right. The first one is as a residency applicant struggling with infertility, what general advice would you give? Number one piece of advice I would give is do not plan your fertility 
For too long, I gave myself a lot of excuses for why it wasn't the right time. And I also shared nothing with nobody. I would be miscarrying on the L&D floor and some of my closest co-resident friends had no idea. So if you can let some people into your life, it is going to make it so much easier for you. And I think I was so afraid of making them work more or putting them out or what they thought that I disallowed myself from actually getting help and support that really could have been probably helpful. I think as an applicant, I would really look at the programs to decide who cares about you as a person, not just as a worker bee. You can get great training at any residency. Definitely get a program where you feel like you fit with the people and you feel like they're going to care about you. I also think if the residents have kids, some of them or none of them, those are going to be telltale signs. Is it because they feel like they cannot have children based on the workload? Is it a program that's supportive? What is your time off going to look like? I would want to evaluate some of these questions because residency, as important as it is, it's still your life and you want to be able to enjoy life outside of training as well. All right, number two, Minipure shortage. Are other protocols just as successful? So Minipure is a combination FSH and LH. It is a hormone that is sometimes given in addition to FSH to grow eggs. Now, we use a lot of different protocols for a lot of different reasons. There are protocols with a suppressant called Luprom. There's protocols with birth control pills, with ovulation blockers, with estrogen. If you need LH, really, truly, you do need some. LH is helpful in allowing your body to make estrogen. So yes, it's important. But your body makes natural LH, just naturally, if you're having periods. And so you don't always need LH in every protocol unless you are suppressing the pituitary gland from being able to make any. And this is typical with those Lupron-based protocols. So I don't prefer to do a Lupron-based protocol with no LH. So if we can't get Menopure, which is the case right now, we're using low-dose HCG. And that's what a lot of people are using. HCG stimulates the receptors to make LH. And so that is enough of support to help you get what you need. So some protocols I'm running right now, like antagonists, I'm not running any LH on them. So no Menopure, they're just FSH-only protocols. And we're still seeing great results. And other Lupron-based protocols, I'm adding in low-dose HCG. Ultimately, ask your doctor, but yes, other protocols can be successful. The decision of which protocols should be made based on your particular patient characteristics. All right, what are your thoughts on transferring a low-mosaic embryo? For a low-mosaic embryo, this is an embryo where if we think about when we do genetic testing of an embryo, we take five to eight cells out from the placental segment called the trophectoderm. And then these cells are evaluated to see if they're normal or abnormal. A mosaic means some of the cells are normal and some of the cells are abnormal. A low-level mosaic means most of the cells are normal, but some are abnormal. Here's my approach. These are second-tier embryos. We can consider transferring them after you've been properly counseled, after you have exhausted your supply of euploid embryos, and you are no longer going to do any more IVF cycles. Euploid embryos have a 60 to 65% chance of turning into a baby, The low-level mosaic has about a 20 to 30% chance, which is way more than zero, but it's not 60 to 65. When patients are considering transferring low-level mosaics, I have them talk to both an MFM, a high-risk OBGYN, and a genetic counselor, so we can review that specific mosaicism and what it could potentially mean, and ultimately make sure that everybody is very informed. Ultimately, I counsel we have a lower chance of success, but it's not zero. And if you've been properly counseled, I am okay transferring that as a last resort. And ultimately, I do counsel that everybody should keep them because genetic testing 
may totally change. It's really come a very long way in 10 years. So who knows where that will be five years from now. I have regular 29-day cycles, but all my OPK tests have been negative. Can this happen? This can happen, but it is highly unlikely that you are not ovulating. It is more likely that you are just not detecting it. Remember that an OPK test detects the LH surge from the brain and it's set to a certain level. For most people, the LH surge happens early in the morning, and this is a blood surge. It's a hormone from the pituitary gland. It's in your blood. It then has to get filtered through your kidneys and end up in your urine for you to be able to pee on a test and detect it. One situation I see very commonly when people are not detecting a positive OPK is that they are following the box instructions and they are taking it first thing in the morning. However, if you take it first thing in the morning, then that surge is released in the morning and it may not be in your urine yet, so it may be negative, but the surge may be out of your urine really quickly based on how you metabolize things. So the next day it may be negative again. So I usually recommend taking the test one time per day between 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. When you get a positive, you should time intercourse that day and the next day. The day after the positive surge is considered your ovulation day. If you're constantly getting negatives, then I recommend taking one test around 8 to 10 a.m. and then another test around 6 p.m. That way you should catch a positive. That's not a long enough interval where you should miss seeing that surge. And if you're never able to detect one, there is some version of hypothalamic dysfunction where we do think people do not have a strong enough surge, but typically these people do not have regular periods. So having a regular period is an extremely good sign that you're ovulating. It's just, can we detect it? So if you really still can't get it with OPK, you could consider following your BBT or checking your cervical mucus and seeing if you can identify that ovulation day based on other ways. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. I hope you found this episode on fertility preservation interesting, thinking about lifestyle factors that you can do, but just the difference in egg and embryo freezing and understanding the process a little bit more. As always, you can ask your questions for fertility's sake on Mondays on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, or you can call the voicemail to hear your voice in one of those Q&A episodes, 657 627-3672. Thank you, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. And check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford, MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.